You're listening to Irreverent Bible Talk, a podcast that's not your grandma's Bible study, unless your grandma happens to be really, really cool. Listener discretion is advised if you object to bad words, women preachers, or terrible puns. Welcome to Irreverent Bible Talk. My name's Jenny. I'm an ordained Lutheran pastor, and I also like video games. And I'm Josh, and I'm an audio guy, and I still say the best starter Pokemon is Charmander. On this episode, it's the end of the world as you know it. But I feel fine. We're talking about apocalyptic stuff. So grab a beer, a mocktail, a cup of coffee, or your beverage of choice, and join us as we explore how the Bible is more complicated and more fascinating than you might expect. All right, so we're back with a reverent Bible talk. And as we start all episodes, because our livers love to thank us, Jenny, what are you drinking today? I literally just cracked open, and I don't know if Josh is going to edit it out or not. One of my favorite beers, a Hoppy Poppy IPA from Figueroa Mountain. It's got the beautiful California poppies on the can. That is a really pretty can. That's really pretty. Yeah. What are you drinking? I am drinking, it's called Tip the Cow. It's a Cocoa Espresso Milk Stout. And it is from Single Speed Brewing in Iowa. Uh, I love that both of these are very indicative of the the parts of the country where we live. Right. That I've got California poppies and you've got cow tipping. Like, it's right. perfect. Which, in all fairness, you can't actually tip a cow. I, I feel like I've been lied to my whole life. I absolutely believed that that Midwestern teens were just tipping cows over every weekend. No, Midwestern teens, if they're anything like it was for me back in the day, we'd just go to gravel roads and people's fields and just get hammered. <laughs> it wasn't a good thing. And I know my parents are probably listening to this. Oh, I'm sorry, Mom. Didn't make the smartest decisions growing up, but I never got caught. So we'll go with that. And I don't condone it because it is really stupid. The older I get, the more I realize it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll just We'll just put our PSA on the top and say like, don't especially don't drink and drive like drink responsibly but even if you are a dumb teenager do not drink and drive that's a risk you don't need to be taking with your life or anybody else's life but that is actually not what we're here to talk about no we are here to talk about the apocalypse the end of the world everything's coming to an end the end times This is going to be a multi-parter because we're going to talk about apocalyptic literature. And this time we're especially going to talk about Daniel. Stay tuned for part two and possibly part three, depending on how this goes, because we are definitely going to talk about Revelation, which is like the big one. But Daniel first. I like it. I think this is going to be a fun topic. Maybe fun is not the right word. Maybe just interesting topic. The apocalypse doesn't sound like a lot of fun. We're going to start with the book of Daniel, and I know a lot of you probably already remember Daniel in the lion's den. So Daniel was promoted to this higher level, and his master had this thing that said, hey, there is going to be no praying, there's going to be no acknowledging for 30 days unless it is to me, not to your gods, not to the kings, just to me. Obviously, Daniel being faithful, still worships God, and his peers that were jealous of him reported it, and as punishment, Daniel was thrown into this den of lions to be brutally murdered. But an angel came from God and protected him from a lion attack. And uh, the king goes at dawn to see what happened to Daniel, and Daniel is unharmed. 
So that's probably how a lot of people remember the book of Daniel, because that's what it was for me. And obviously I've heard the the crazy verses, but never really associated with the same guy, even though it was from the same book. And he says, I, Daniel, and those stories. Yes. And actually, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, because Daniel is... Kind of two two books smushed together, or maybe more than two, but it's kind of got some different elements to it. So we're going to talk all about it. Yeah. So we're going to start with the big one in Daniel chapter seven. Yeah. Tell us about Daniel chapter seven. It is a trip. You know, I've read it multiple times today. I listened to different versions on the YouTube's. I still don't know what the hell's going on. Like, I think I'm starting to piece it all together because it's crazy. Because Daniel's like, hey, going to bed. And he has this dream about these four creatures and a lot of horrifying description of these creatures coming and before him. And then they're all monsters and tearing each other apart and some of that kind of stuff. And then the ancient one comes and it's like all the kingdom, all those are wiped out and acknowledging the ancient one as the ruler that's going to be there after all. And then in the dream, Daniel asks one of the people that are there, like, hey, what what does this mean? And the four beasts are talking about four different kingdoms. And then obviously Jesus comes and is the ruler and leader of the earth and takes over at the end. There's probably a better way for me to say that, but... Yeah, yeah. So we have like this crazy dream Daniel has, and I'm just going to like read a little bit of it so you get the flavor of it. Four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I watched, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being, and a human mind was given to it. Another beast appeared, a second one, that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side, had three tusks in its mouth among its teeth, and was told, Arise, devour many bodies." And then skipping down just a tiny bit, because the last beast is like the weirdest one. There was a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It was different from all the beasts that preceded it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns when another horn appeared, a little one coming up among them. To make room for it, three of the earlier horns were plucked up by the roots. There were eyes like human eyes in this horn, and a mouth speaking arrogantly. So it's like, what on earth does any of that mean? Right, that's such a weird trip. Like, it's a very weird dream sequence. From my understanding of the, like, it's a it's a horn like you would see on a bull or a unicorn or or an antelope. Yeah, all of these are historical real creatures. Right, and so it's just weird that hey, there's ten, but all of a sudden like. Here pops another one, but it actually is like a lot. It's like a person. Yeah, you have you have ten horns, and then three of them get pushed out for this one horn. So really, there's like eleven or eight, depending on how you count it. But then this one horn also has eyes and a mouth, and it's like, what on earth, Daniel? Like, right? Why can't you just have a normal dream about going to school without your pants on, and you don't know any of the lines for the school play? Like, oh my god, do we need to get into these dream sequences? How I still. It's been 20 years since I graduated high school. I still have nightmares about like, hey, you didn't know you had this class, but you have to pass it in order to graduate. Like, what? how how is this still happening? I mean, if we're going to talk about weird dream things, this is not one that I've had, but I've been told that it is fairly common to have dreams about your teeth falling out. And I'm like, 
why why do our human brains do this and it's not like just one person had like this is it's like a thing yeah so dreams are really powerful and they're used a lot in the bible for i had this dream and it was this vision and here's what it led to you know it goes back to joseph interpreting the dreams mm-hmm. of the baker and all that yeah so one of the things that we see in the Bible is this idea that dreams can be a way that you hear from God, right? That God gives you special insight through some dreams. Not that all dreams are like visions, but it is in the Bible possible for a dream to really be like a divine message. So I don't think it's going to be real productive to try to go through the whole book of Daniel, it would take a thousand years. It would be so many episodes. I have done like a line by line study of Daniel, but I don't think that's what we're going to do today. So instead of that, I want to kind of sketch broad outline of Daniel and then talk about what it has to do with this genre of apocalyptic end of the world literature. Daniel has so many different stories. Like, I didn't realize that, like, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in this book as well. And that's a whole other topic that... Yeah. Yeah, the the three young men in the fiery furnace, which is a lot like the story of Daniel in the lion's den, where because these people are faithful to the god of Israel, the god of Abraham, they are thrown into a, a furnace to be burned alive, but they come out safely because of God's miraculous intervention. Absolutely. But, you know, trying to like read through some of Daniel and then like specifically this chapter, it's like, would you pick a plot and stick with it? (laughs) Is that too much to ask? Yeah. So part of what's going on here is sort of the background of the book of Daniel. Daniel is a very weird book. For one thing, it is, I believe, the only book of the Bible at least in the the Protestant canon. We've talked about the Catholic Church has additional books and I don't know them as well. But at least in the in the Protestant Bible or the Jewish Bible, I think Daniel is the only book that is not written in Hebrew. And Daniel is partly written in Hebrew, but part of it is written in Aramaic. And so there's this weird switch that happens where it goes from, you know, you're reading along in Hebrew, and then suddenly it switches languages. And that may be because the the original text was all Hebrew, but part of it was lost, and we only have this, like, translation. It's not really clear. But Daniel's a little weird that way. And then, in addition to that, Daniel takes a really sharp sort of turn at chapter seven. So if you read the whole book, it's 12 chapters. The first six chapters are all these sort of individual vignettes that are all under the the thematic heading of people who are living in exile. So basically, the people of Israel were taken away to Babylon. They were forced to live in exile. They were forced to live in a society that had very different cultural and religious practices and who obviously worshipped different gods. And so each of the first six chapters of Daniel deals with these sort of challenges of, okay, well, now you're living in a foreign land, you're living in Babylon, what are you going to do about food? 
right? You can't eat the same food the Babylonians eat because that's not kosher. It's against the law, the Jewish law. You have the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are thrown in the furnace for refusing to worship the king. You have Daniel who's thrown into the furnace because he's not worshiping the king. So you have all these incidents where again and again, the kind of message is stay true to God, even in these challenging circumstances, continue to obey God and you will be protected. You will be preserved. You'll come through the fiery furnace. You'll come through the lion's den. You're going to be okay. And then chapter seven, there's a real shift. And the second half of the book is just full on apocalyptic visions. And so chapter seven is sort of a great uh, case study, but it's throughout the rest of the book is just Daniel having these visions and not really knowing what's going on. And then an angel will come and like explain to him what the vision is about and kind of give him in some instructions of what he's supposed to do with this new information that he's received. Do we know where it switched from Hebrew to Aramaic in these books? Like, did it happen at that fracture where the book kind of went opposite? That would make so much sense if it did. Uh, but no, it actually, I'm, I'm looking back because I want to tell you what, what verse it is. So Daniel chapter 2, verse 4 the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is talking to his some of his advisors. And chapter 2, verse 4 says, The Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and then in my English translation, there's like a comma, and then what they say, that's where it switches. So it's like Hebrew for the first chapter and the first three and a half verses of chapter 2. And then it's like the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and then the text switches to Aramaic. So for the whole rest of the book? No. <laughs> okay. This is even more crazy. It's very weird. It is very weird. So it continues in Aramaic, if I'm remembering correctly from my seminary class, through chapter 7. So including chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, I think it switches back. So it's very weird because the kind of literary split of like the content of the book happens between chapter six and chapter seven, but the like linguistic thing that's happening with the Hebrew and the Aramaic does not line up with that. And it's weird, it's really weird. So you can't just be like, oh, this was translated obviously from Aramaic to Hebrew, to this, to this, and that's why it's so weird. Like, no, this was, this is how it was meant to be written. It, it seems that way. I mean, I think that there are some different interpretations of it. So for example, one possibility is that the book was originally all Hebrew, but part of that has been lost. And we just don't have that like physical copy of the book where it's all in Hebrew. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a mystery, uh, at least to me. I'm sure there's somebody who has devoted their entire professional career to the history of the book of Daniel and they would have an answer, but I do not. Weird. It is weird. It's a very strange book. All right. Well, uh, we should get. I should let you get back on topic because I always take us off on these weird things. I love the tangents. I think the tangents are great. Uh, uh, for me, it's very educational, so that's why I like them so much. Excellent. But, well, and hopefully our listeners feel that way too. I hope so. I I think they should. 
If not, well, I'm telling you, that's how you should feel because I can control your feelings and your thoughts, I, I guess. So, Jenny, the four beasts. Four beasts. Okay. Before we totally dive into that, I just need to do like a little bit more background. So I mentioned that the sort of narrative of Daniel is happening during this time of the exile. And the exile is is a historical event. It's not only a historical event that is really prominent in the Hebrew Bible, but it's also like there are other records outside of the Bible about this this event that happened. And so like long story short, Babylon was an an empire, it was a power it was expanding and Babylon eventually conquered Jerusalem. Initially, they conquered the city and they kind of took the king and a few people away into exile and they were like, okay, behave. And then the people of Jerusalem tried to rebel. And so Babylon came back and was like, okay, now we're burning all your shit down. And so part of what they did was they actually burned the temple to the ground. So the temple is the most sacred place in the Jewish faith, at least in in ancient times. So this was the very first temple, the one that is supposedly Solomon built it. The temple is the place where like the Ark of the Covenant was kept, where the sacrifices were performed. So the temple is like a huge deal and it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then what the Babylonians did, because this was kind of their like imperial strategy of how they, you know, controlled all this huge territory and all these people, is that they took the people of Jerusalem into exile. And it probably wasn't like every single person living in Jerusalem, but what they would do is they would take sort of the upper echelon of society. So anybody who was noble, anybody who might like be the third cousin of the old king, who might have like a claim to the throne, people who were educated, like people who were literate, scribes, that kind of thing. The folks who had like you know, particular skills that would have been useful, those folks all get transplanted. They get taken out of Jerusalem, out of uh, Judah, and plopped down in Babylon. And this is like more than any other event, sort of the defining event of the Hebrew Bible. It's not always talked about on the surface, although there are definitely uh books that do, like Jeremiah is all about this whole exilic kind of period of these these kings and leaders in Jerusalem and Jeremiah coming to them and saying, like, this city's going to get conquered. Like, let me tell you what's up. And they don't want to hear it. Anyway, so the exile is a huge deal. And Daniel tells these narratives of, okay, well, what was it like living in exile? So you are Jewish, you are still trying to be faithful. There's all this cultural pressure to assimilate and to eat the food the Babylonians eat and do the things that the Babylonians tell you to do, which includes worshiping their emperor. And the people in exile, the Jews have to resist this pressure to assimilate. They have to stay faithful to God and faithful to God's law under some very challenging circumstances. 
that's the surface. That's the what the book of Daniel, the story the book of Daniel is telling. What Daniel is really about is not that. Because the whole book of Daniel is encoded. It's talking about living in exile in Babylon. But what it's really about is living under a different empire some 400 years later. So it's actually about the Greeks. If you look at like these empires in, uh, in the ancient world, the sort of ancient Near East Mediterranean world, you had the Assyrians, then the Babylonians come to power, then the Persians come to power, and then there's this dude named Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great conquers this huge amount of territory. He creates this Greek empire. He drops dead in, I think, his 30s, very young. And then his vast empire that he had conquered ends up getting carved up into several dynasties. So that's a lot of background. The point here for Daniel is that the author of the book of Daniel and the original audience of the book of Daniel were actually living back in Jerusalem. They had returned from exile. They were living under a Greek ruler, and specifically a guy by the name of Antiochus IV, and he was really bad news for the people of Israel. So what the whole book of Daniel is about is really this guy, Antiochus, who is nowhere named in the book. Everything is uh, expressed in terms of this is what it's like being in Babylon, but Babylon is standing in for Greece, for the Greek empire. So that's kind of what's happening under the surface or like behind the scenes uh, for those who are kind of in the know. It makes sense to code it because if you're writing something, the last thing you want them to do is actually read that because you're going to face blowback. You're going to face, you know, and in this case, with this ruler, like, you're dead. And probably your family's dead. And probably your family's family's dead. Because it just seems like it is going, they go, this particular leader went scorched earth and just any excuse to kill a Jewish person, they were all for it. Yeah, so we, we can talk a little bit about why Antiochus was so, so bad. I think of him as kind of being like the Darth Vader of the Hebrew Bible. Like he's, he's really bad news. But the book of Daniel is all this kind of coded imagery that's really getting at this, this other contemporary issue. And they're using stories from 400 years earlier to be able to talk about it. So as an example, I'm actually going to kick back to Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar, again, the king of Babylon, has had a dream. No one can interpret his dream. He's really angry. And finally, Daniel steps forward and Nebuchadnezzar says, tell me what my dream was and its meaning, right? So he's asking Daniel to do something impossible. He's not saying, oh, I dreamed about these cows. Tell me what it means. He's like, tell me what I dreamed, and then also tell me what it means. And Daniel does after praying to God for help. 
And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, okay, well, what you dreamed was of this huge statue, this great, great statue. And the head of the statue was gold, and the torso was silver, the thighs were bronze, the lower legs were iron, and the feet were made of clay. And that's actually like an idiom uh, that you may have heard before of like feet of clay, meaning like something that is going to kind of topple. That comes from this, this passage. So Daniel says, okay, that's what you dreamed. You dreamed of this statue. Now let me tell you what it means. Each of those parts of the statue is a different kingdom. And so Daniel says that head that was made of gold, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar, right? That's Babylon is the, the head of gold. And then the next part, the silver part, is another kingdom that's going to arise after you. And then the bronze is another kingdom that comes after that. And then finally, the, the clay at the foot of the statue, each of these represents a kingdom, but the, the clay represents this kingdom that is bad and evil in Daniel's interpretation. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That's Greece. That's, that's the Greek empire that represents or that is represented by the, the feet of the statue. And similar kind of interpretation in Daniel 7 and 8, where Daniel's having his own dreams, where you have these beasts and the beasts are going to represent different powers. When Daniel has the dream about the beasts, a angel or a, a like a heavenly attendant tells him what it means and says, as for these great beasts, four kings shall arise out of the earth, but the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. And Daniel's like, tell me more about the fourth beast, which is like the freakiest one. And the angel says, there shall be a fourth kingdom that shall be different from all other kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. That's the little horn. Um, this one shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He will speak words against the Most High, blah, 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 uh, but then eventually is going to be judged and destroyed and God is going to prevail. So all of this like weird imagery about beasts and horns and destruction and all of that, it's all talking about basically geopolitics. The angel is saying like, these are kingdoms and kings and these represent from Daniel's point of view, future events, right? Like from, from Daniel's point of view, sitting in Babylon, this is stuff that's going to happen hundreds of years in the future. But from the point of view of the book and its audience are actually current events. They are currently living under that, that little horn, that, that horn that has eyes and a mouth and speaks arrogantly. But he's never named. They never say, this little horn is the king that's currently oppressing you. Like, <laughs> you're supposed to read between the lines to get that. Yeah, so these beasts are there, and then everything falls. Like, the kingdom, that kingdom is going to collapse. So it is almost 
talking about the apocalypse of that kingdom. And so when you get some of that language, it is the end of times for that certain ruler and that that city could be because it all could fall apart. Yeah. And and I think for the original audience of Daniel, it was the, like the, the stakes were really that high that we are talking about like end of the world stuff. Obviously, like you and I today know that there's been another, you know, more than 2000 years of history that is has gone on since these events but for the people that were living through it it was really not just life or death but really like end of the world level threat and that's kind of the the whole vibe of apocalyptic literature and like as we do these these couple of episodes talking about apocalyptic literature i think that's sort of the overarching principle behind it is that when people are being so severely oppressed and it feels like there is no hope, then apocalyptic literature comes in and says, yes, things are extremely bad, but God is going to triumph in the end. And that's definitely the message of Daniel is like, yeah, you're going to get thrown in a furnace, you're going to get thrown in a lion's den, but like in the end, God is going to come out on top. And there are these terrible beasts that are going to be rampaging all over the earth. But in the end, they're all going to be defeated. We can still relate to that because we know there's leaders and dictators and horrible people in this world that are in charge that could be compared to the beasts ravaging the world. And I think that's why some people can see it and maybe interpret it as like, no, this is talking about right now, as opposed to like, no, this was written in you know before christ was born like it was a message of strength for today hope for tomorrow yeah and and i think it's important to hold both of those things like i think they can both be true that on the one hand a book like daniel was written in a particular time and place and it is extremely clear that it was meant to be talking about this particular king and this particular persecution that was happening and at the same time, it still sort of has a message for people who are in any circumstance of despair and hopelessness. And I, I think it's really, we have to be careful about that because it's very easy with these apocalyptic books to be like, I can decode it and I know exactly what it's talking about and, and I'm going to be able to predict the future based on, you know, my reading of Revelation that's not what it's about, right? Daniel is about Antiochus IV. Revelation is about the Roman Empire. So it's not meant to be decoded for our time, but it does still have meaning for our time, if that makes sense, right? Like anytime people feel hopeless, these books still have a, a relevant message. Um, I guess the example that's kind of coming to mind for me is, you know, if you are living in Ukraine right now, right, and and literally facing an invasion by a hostile power, that's not that different from the experience of these books in their original context. But that doesn't mean that you can like decode the book and be like, I know which which image represents Vladimir Putin. like. Vladimir Putin is not in this book, but people suffering and needing God 
is absolutely relevant across time. Yeah, and you know, I think easily even that so long ago, as a people, we can still relate to some of those horrible tragedies back in the day. And we can still see the message of hope and that still encouraging us to keep continue going on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to remember that every single generation of human history has had people who thought they were living at the end of the world. And so far, none of them have been correct. But these experiences of like really terrifying events, like, yeah, you need comfort and you need something that's going to kind of help give you a framework to understand what's happening. And that's where this kind of apocalyptic writing comes into play. I think you definitely have to be careful when you're dealing with apocalyptic literature because, you know, if we look at just recent history, you know, the past couple of decades, like doomsday cults are a thing and they're really dangerous for the people who get swept up in them. And it's very easy to motivate people through fear, right? To say, like, you should be scared because of X, Y, and Z, right? Like, you should be scared because there's microchips in the coronavirus vaccine, which there aren't. But, right, like, that kind of thinking of, like, oh, no, there's this existential threat is very good for getting people to behave a certain way. And... When we read books like Daniel and especially Revelation, which we are going to get into in a, a next episode, it's very, very easy to get swept up in the scary stuff and like the the imagery of like beasts and dragons and fire and, you know, an, an eternal suffering. And, and ultimately, those things aren't the point of these apocalyptic books. These apocalyptic books are saying to people who are already living in hell, there will be a different ending, right? That the ultimate conclusion of this story is that God is going to triumph and that suffering is going to end. Um, we see that like extremely clearly at the end of the book of Revelation, which again, we'll talk more about. But I think ultimately, these apocalyptic books are meant to be comforting. They're not meant to scare you. And so, like, be very careful, be very cautious of anyone who says they can tell you the real meaning behind these books and, like, how it's about today. And also, be cautious about letting fear be your motivating force if you're engaging with this kind of writing. Absolutely, because mortality is a huge fear for people like you're gonna die someday and that's terrifying like i think it's terrifying you know some people can accept it a little more but you know ultimately like you don't want to die like you want to continue on you want things to get better but just that little bit of fear can just take you down this horrible dark road which is heartbreaking and you know if you're feeling that way reach out somebody's gonna there is somebody there to talk to you about it but i can see how like this would just destroy some people and how this could be that comfort like yeah this is this is awful but we're gonna get through this in the end god's gonna win and then we'll be rewarded for all the the trials that we have gone through and maybe just to kind of bring that 
back to the specifics of the book of Daniel, I think it's kind of worth talking about what was happening when this book was being written, which I've already mentioned. It's really talking about this guy, Antiochus IV. He was one of the Greek dynasties that kind of split up Alexander's empire after he died. And then you fast forward a couple of, of centuries. But what happened with Antiochus IV specifically is that his predecessors, the other Greek kings that had been ruling over Judea, were pretty tolerant, right? It was like, as long as you pay your taxes and you don't try to rebel against us, like, we're going to kind of let you do your own thing. That was not Antiochus. Antiochus executed a really brutal repression of Jewish identity and Jewish culture. It's not totally clear why he did that, but one of the things that is documented that he did is that he sacrificed a pig at the temple in Jerusalem. So first historical note, I already said the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. That was the first temple. When the people returned from exile, they rebuilt the temple. That is known as the second temple. And the second temple lasted until the Romans. So the Romans are the ones that destroy the second temple. But during this period with the Greek Empire, there was a temple in Jerusalem. Antiochus took a pig, which is unclean according to Jewish law, and slaughtered it in the temple, which was like, I mean, just unimaginably offensive uh, to Jewish people. And as a result, there was a rebellion against Antiochus. And the amazing thing is that they succeeded. The rebels won. This is what was known as either the Hasmonean Revolt or the Maccabean Revolt. We don't have to get into the terminology. But for about 100 years, the Jewish people living in Jerusalem had their own king. After this like succession of empires that had conquered them, they attained independence. They had their own king. They had their own monarchy for about a hundred years. They kicked the Greeks out, and that lasted until Rome became the dominant power. But all of that is the, the background context to the book of Daniel, which means there was this horrible oppression happening. People were being martyred. They were being murdered for their faith. But also when you see in Daniel this talk of like God is going to defeat all these empires, all these other kingdoms, and establish the true kingdom of God that is going to last forever, I mean, that's, you can call it propaganda, but like, that's what people were looking toward. They were looking toward this new monarchy that, that did kick the Greeks out. And there was this hope that like, this is the new era that we're going to be our own kingdom again, which we haven't been in 500 years, and we're going to be independent, and God is going to do this for us. And like, obviously, that's not how things played out in the long term. But what does kind of last from this crisis moment is in the face of, of terrible persecution, that people did keep faith in God and there is this trust that God is ultimately going to win, that God is going to defeat all the powers, human or superhuman, 
that are opposed to God. God is going to triumph in the end. I'm trying to think of like how to like respond to that, but that was just so <laughs> good and it was so thought out. I took a class in seminary that was literally called Daniel and Apocalyptic. So this is something that I've like read some stuff about. I like it. I dig it. This is really interesting. Uh, finishing this up, is there anything that, you know, we didn't touch on that's like, oh, and another thing? Like, uh, I always have and another thing. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Just Book of Daniel trivia. The Book of Daniel is the, the first and the clearest um, instance in the whole Hebrew Bible uh, that talks about resurrection. For most of the Hebrew Bible, there is not an understanding that, like, people will be raised from the dead on the last day to be, you know, judged, good or bad. You get some hints of it here and there, but Daniel is the place where that belief, that sort of conviction really becomes clear. And so this is the final chapter of Daniel uh, where it says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there's this promise also of ultimate justice. And in some of the other writings from the time period that aren't in the Bible, but are like some of the apocryphal books and some of the other books from the same time period, it talks about this issue of like, okay, well, sometimes people die before they get their, you know, just punishment. And sometimes people who stay true to God and are faithful die anyway. And so like, how is this just? Like, how is God going to sort of balance the scales of justice? And this period in Jewish history is when the idea of a resurrection really becomes more solid, more of a, a kind of thought out idea. Again, because in the face of like terrible injustice, there is this need to understand that there is going to be some kind of fairness in like the cosmic sense. So we have this expression of like, yeah, people are going to be raised from the dead and they're going to get what they deserve. So the people who were faithful are going to be rewarded, and the people who were terrible are going to be punished. And then obviously this idea of resurrection becomes pretty important for the Jewish folks who become followers of Jesus and become the first Christians. Like, resurrection's kind of a big deal for them. But in terms of the Hebrew Bible and the, the Jewish belief, most of the Hebrew Bible doesn't talk about resurrection. And Daniel is the place where it's really expressed the most clearly. You can just keep pumping these facts out, can't you? Yeah. Yeah. Endlessly. I, I love it. I, I think this is really interesting. And, you know, something this important, at least from my understanding, gets overlooked a lot. Because you get the, the, the three men in the fiery furnace. You get... Daniel in the lion's den. It, this just kind of gets overlooked, but this is like a huge key historical and faith-wise that... Yeah. We, we will continue talking about the end of the world more in the context of Revelation next time. But yeah, thanks for listening and we will talk to you again real soon. Thanks for listening to A Reverend Bible Talk. 
You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find us at soundcloud.com slash irreverentbible. And remember, just like Balaam and his donkey learned, sometimes even God communicates through a talking ass.